After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are here on Monday, March 28th, to wrap up week six of college baseball. It was an exhilarating, thrilling weekend. You had Ole Miss taking on Tennessee and Tennessee coming away with a resounding sweep. The Vols uh, moving to number one in the Baseball America Top 25. You had uh, maybe the series of the year in Lubbock with Texas and Texas Tech going at it. Uh, Plenty of other great action around the country. Lots to talk about in the ACC. Uh, Surprise team atop the Pac-12 standings after the first three weeks of play. And uh, who knows where else we'll go. Maybe Army-Navy. That that happened on Sunday. Army swept the doubleheader against the midshipmen and shut them out of both games. So... Uh, we've got plenty to talk about here on the Baseball America College Podcast, and that's what we're going to do today, Joe. And I fear that because we have so much college baseball to talk about and because it happened so recently and it happened while uh, you and I were both scrambling to do our Sunday night things, that we won't be able to offer our takes about Will Smith and Chris Rock at the Oscars last night. I know that's what everybody is tuning in here for today. So, I, you know, Joe and I might have to... uh, might have to delay those takes until Thursday uh, so we can really, you know, let them sit and, uh, and, and see where, where, where we stand. Yeah. It's probably smart to let that news cycle play out a little bit. Let us get here all sides of the story, really get the facts of the case before we, it's just responsible journalism on our part. I feel like <laughs> it was, it was, I want to hear weird... from Will directly, you know, I mean, I, I have right. a call out to him. Yeah. Yeah. His people certainly. Yeah. I, uh, it was a classic case. You mentioned us scrambling to do our typical Sunday night things. And that that's so, that was so true in this one. It's pretty rare. I mean, so much of our job requires us to kind of be present online. Um, and I, I, I do my best to not just be sitting on Twitter all day, but like we do spend a lot of time on Twitter, let's be honest. And so I'm not really used to being completely confused by what's happening in the news and what everyone's talking about. Cause I'm typically, have at least some idea, but this was one where I hadn't really been on Twitter at all late in the afternoon or early evening as I was getting the top 25 stuff written up and somebody in our BA Slack mentioned something about Chris Rock. And I was like, I know he was kind of involved in the Oscars. And so I was like, okay, like it's Oscars related and, but I don't know what it means. And then I get on Twitter and everyone's kind of 
it had been long enough since the thing happened that people were no longer like actually referencing the thing. They were like subtweeting the thing or like talking around the thing. And so I was desperately trying to figure out like what on earth happened here. And uh, it took me a little, a little while, but it was, um, it was a little disorienting trying to, trying to scramble to figure out what had happened. It, it, it was a, a window into, you know, kind of uh, what it's like when other people have come to me and been like, have you heard about this, uh, this thing or that thing? Just knowing that uh, I'm someone who's a little more online than, than the average person. Yeah. I don't think I realized it had happened until one thirty in the morning, <laughs> which yeah, point a I took earlier. a break from writing uh, off the bat to really dive into what, what had happened. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, crazy times if you believe that was a genuine uh genuine thing and not a a work as they would say in the professional wrestling world well see that's what we that's what we're going to have to dive into before thursday and then we can uh, we right. can come back and and share our takes at the time um until then we've got plenty of college baseball takes well i don't know how many takes we got we've got plenty of college baseball thoughts for you and joe i guess there's only one place to start this week and that was with uh tennessee and Ole Miss, they uh, they did they did their action. <laughs> they played their series in a sold out Swayze Field in Oxford, Mississippi. Ole Miss came into the weekend number one. Tennessee leaves the weekend number one. First time in the forty two year history of the Baseball America Top twenty five that the Vols are number one, and they're number one because of their resounding sweep of Ole Miss. Uh, they left absolutely no doubt about this series. Uh, Tennessee just rolled through the first two games. They, uh, they blasted Ole Miss for 22 runs in, in those two games, 12 runs on Friday, 10 runs on Saturday. And then they won a tight four to three game on Sunday to finish off the sweep. Tennessee has won 23 games. That's the most in the country. And they've won 15 straight, which is the longest active winning streak. Uh, it's, uh, it's an incredible team. It was a great weekend for the Vols. Yeah, no doubt. And back they, they backed up some of the talk that you really heard. You know, I know it's something that I said. I had heard other people say it to me. But leading up to the weekend, really over the last 10 days or so, I started hearing more people talk about, you know, Tennessee might actually be the best team in the country. Um, just the balance they have. Obviously, the lineup is incredible. The way the freshman pitchers have stepped up. It was really kind of all coming together for them. And um, here they are at this point, I think pretty in, on, in terms of talent performance and resume, just the, the clear number one team There really wasn't, I mean, there, I, I say there really wasn't, there literally wasn't any debate about number one. I think you and I jumped on and very quickly agreed on it and we moved on. Like, you know, I mean, if there were some things that could have happened that maybe would have given us a debate, but there just wasn't at this point, it was just that kind of an impressive sweep and really going right to script for Tennessee. Right. I mean, the Ole Miss pitching staff, the first two days really had nothing for the Tennessee lineup and Tennessee lineup just ate them alive. And then the, the Tennessee pitching staff, even if the Ole Miss pitchers had done a better job, the Tennessee pitching staff did a good enough job that they would have been in the games regardless. So it really went exactly the way that the volunteers would have wanted and getting that sweep on Sunday, I think is not nothing um, because that you know, winning a series on the road, impressive enough, sweeping a good team. And let's not forget, this is still an Ole Miss team that we think is very good. That just doesn't happen in the SEC. Uh, sweeping a good team on the road is, is not an easy thing to do. And so often you see this kind of thing happen where 
team wins the first two games and in the third game uh, the the script flips and it's it's oftentimes kind of a non-competitive game we saw that in a couple of other places this weekend that, that we'll talk about later where the third game is just a different story but they come out and play well again on sunday you know they're leading four nothing and you know they get they get a Ole Miss gets a home run in the eighth inning to make it a four to three game and, and they're able to hold Ole Miss off and to me that's just as impressive as as the first two days, just from the standpoint of one, a sweep versus a series win, that's a big deal. But then also I think it shows just a level of focus and a level of killer instinct, if you will, about this Tennessee team that they weren't really just satisfied with winning the first two games. They they wanted that sweep and they had to fight for it and got it. I don't want to dismiss the fact that Tennessee scored 22 runs. I just wasn't overly surprised in the first two games. I wasn't overly surprised that their offense was able to make things happen. Ole Miss's pitching staff is not the strength of, uh, of the Rebs and Tennessee came in leading the nation in scoring and leading the nation in home runs and all the rest of it. So the fact that they scored 22 runs, um, I mean, you could have sold that to me pretty easily coming into the weekend. What I was incredibly impressed by though is, and, and I was impressed by that, but what stood out more to me, I should say, is that the Vols held the Rebs, who came into the weekend, ranked eighth in the country in scoring, 9.8 runs per game. The Vols held those Rebs to seven runs on the weekend. Seven runs. And this is a Tennessee pitching staff that, as we've talked about before, you know, the rotation uh, came into this weekend with three SEC games to its name, two freshmen and a sophomore who transferred from Georgia Southern. That is Tennessee's rotation. They're incredibly talented, but they went on the road into a sold-out Swayze field and held what still looks to be one of the best lineups in the conference and therefore in the country to seven runs on the weekend. By the way, the starters only gave up, I think it was two of those runs, and almost didn't score until the seventh inning in any game. Uh, they really didn't string hardly anything together. All of their runs came via the home run. Uh, and, you know, that happens. Uh, and, and that happens when, you know, you have a power pitching staff and, and when you're playing this, this Ole Miss team, they're going to hit some home runs against you eventually. And uh, Tennessee did a really good job at managing uh, the, the situation so that, you know, there weren't runners on base so that the home runs didn't cost them too terribly much. And, uh, I just can't say enough about what those starters, uh, particularly, but the entire Tennessee pitching staff did this weekend in Oxford. Yeah, it's it's just such a a luxury position they're in too. That you know, Blade Tidwell is going to come back here in the coming weeks, and they're in just this such week. An it sounds position. like Tony Vitello said after the game that it's probably going to be this week. Uh, Tidwell, who is a preseason All American, warmed up uh, like he he ran down to the bullpen on Sunday. They didn't use him. Uh, this was his first week on the active roster. Unclear what role he'll be in. It'll be out of the bullpen, it sounds like, to start with, or maybe he would start on, like, Wednesday um, and go for, like, an inning or something. But obviously they have to build him back up. But uh, I'm saying all of this because Vitello, after the game, he was he was explaining this, and he he said basically he's sick of, uh, of, of Tidwell sending him death threats via text message uh that's a slight paraphrase but the phrase death threats uh was was uttered there so blade tidwell absolutely ready to get back out on the mound yeah they're just in a really good position where they're not going to have to rush him to get him back into the rotation i mean you can imagine a different scenario 
where things haven't gone so well for them on the mound where, I mean, there would still be ramp up time. I'm not saying they do anything reckless, but they would feel a little bit of pressure to get him back up to speed and get him back on the weekend. And now they're really in a position where they don't have to rush to do any of that. Like they can build him up nice and slow and take their time with it and be cautious about it in a way that they otherwise might not feel like they had the luxury to do. And that just tells you how good this group has been so far this season. Um, one thing that stands out to me about Tennessee, like we talked about this a little bit on the preview and, and we've talked about it with Tennessee before. I talked about it as I came out of seeing them in Houston, but something about the fact that he got his 10th home run over the weekend. I think when I look at the stat sheet and I see a double digit number in the home run column for him just stood out to me and made me think about it again. But, you know, Trey Lipscomb is turning into like one of the most interesting stories in college baseball, just because this is a guy who over his first three years at Tennessee had just a little bit over 80 plate appearances and combined. Um, and then this year he finally gets an opportunity and he's run with it to the tune of, you know, hitting 382 with 10 home runs, um, you know, in, in the whole bit, low, low strikeout rate. Um, you know, he's, he's hit some doubles too. So he's not just swinging from the heels for home runs. I mean, he's, he's really having a nice year. Um, and like we talked about in the preview episode, like that's impressive about this Tennessee team that they're developing guys like that. It is also absolute coaching catnip. For, for coaches out there to, as an example of pointing to, Hey, you know, if you stick around and you work hard and wait for your opportunity, like things like this can happen. Um, it, it's just such a, um, again, it, it's one thing for these guys in this lineup who have been productive for two or three years at this point. It's, it's also one thing to have a stud recruit come in and immediately be great. But the idea that Trey Lipscomb is a guy who was never a major contributor on this team to come in as a fourth-year guy and be one of the biggest bats in their lineup is just really, really impressive stuff. I think this weekend answered just about every question you could have about Tennessee. They played on the road uh, in a true road environment for the first time. They you know, faced a premier offense and, and limited them. They answered you – know, it was always a dumb question of like, oh – Tennessee plays in a small ballpark like Lindsey Nelson is a is a band box. How are they going to do outside that? And I'm not here to say that Swayze is, uh, you know, Dodgers Stadium, but they uh, they hit five home runs on Friday. And then, I mean, I think also just as interestingly, they scored 10 runs without hitting a homer on Saturday and didn't homer on Sunday and they won. It's not a team that uh, is completely homer dependent. Again, it was Ole Miss that needed all the homers uh, or needed all their runs to come via home run. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think at this point, uh, this is this is a, a clear cut number one team. This is the kind of team we've been waiting to establish itself. Uh, now, having said that, they have to go on the road and face Vanderbilt this weekend, which is obviously another difficult test. Uh, add in the, the rivalry spice to it, and uh, that that should be a really really fun series this weekend in Nashville. On the flip side, Joe, you said at one point here that we still think Ole Miss is a, is a good team. I think that's true. Uh, but I imagine Ole Miss fans are uh, maybe not feeling that right now. And uh, there are some, as, as many questions as this weekend answered for Tennessee, I, like it exposed everything about Ole Miss. Or at least, even if you felt like you knew those things already, they did nothing to answer the, the questions they had themselves, their starters did not have a good weekend. Nobody made it through five innings either. Even um, again, they didn't score against Tennessee starters 
particularly much. Uh, they weren't really able to string a whole lot together. Um, they did field better than Tennessee. Tennessee had more errors on the weekend, but that that's like the only area you can point to and say, well, like that went better. I mean, really, honestly, it felt like the highlight of the series for Ole Miss was that on Friday night, Lane Kiffin went out there to throw out the first pitch. And instead of throwing a baseball, he threw away the baseball and threw a golf ball instead, which is a reference, if you're not a college football fan, to the fact that uh, Lane Kiffin, the Ole Miss football coach, used to be the Tennessee football coach. They played, Ole Miss played at Tennessee uh, this this year for the first time since he left the Tennessee job to uh, a whole lot of, of angst uh, about him leaving that job a decade ago. Uh, and somebody threw a golf ball and also a mustard bottle uh, at him from the stands. So he threw a golf ball out uh, as his first pitch. That felt like the highlight of the series. And that obviously is not a good thing for the Rebs. Mustard bottle that might have been uh, a unique flask situation. That's always been my theory of the case on that one. I don't, that's not a unique thought. I've seen that, but I think that's probably what that mustard bottle was actually. Uh, unless someone was just like, you know what? We have all these hot dogs and I just got to have my own, my own mustard. But, um, but yes, I mean, yeah, it was um, yeah. Short on highlights for Ole Miss. Um, you know, I guess Dunhurst three run Homer on Sunday in terms of on field stuff. It's like, okay, they were back in that game, but yeah, just um, this was the type of weekend I think that given the shortcomings on the mound that we always thought was coming at some point, and the hope was just that Ole Miss could win a series kind of in the way, and we'll talk about this later, kind of in the way that LSU won a series this weekend where you just, you, you, you're able to keep up enough offensively to overcome that, those shortcomings. And also you, you know, one day on the weekend, you get a better than average performance from somebody you might not have expected it from. And maybe that has to be a different person every weekend, but you kind of piece it together that way. And just none of that happened this weekend. Um, you know, the, the offense wasn't up to, up to the task. And, and obviously the, the pitching just kind of folded under the, the, the pressure that the Tennessee offense applied. I mean, it was, it was really a, a weekend that, I think, I think you hit it head on, you know, that it really just kind of exposed everything that we thought was going to make Ole Miss vulnerable this year. Um, they've, who they are is going to be enough for them to win a lot of games this season um, and plenty of games still in the, in the SEC. Um, but I think this also kind of exposed that it's, it could be a real problem when they are going to be facing the best that the SEC and college baseball in general has to offer. Ole Miss plays North Alabama on Tuesday. Uh, they then have to go to Kentucky. Kentucky is difficult to beat in Lexington. Georgia just found that out this weekend. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the Wildcats uh, handle the Rebs this weekend. Kentucky got some bad news as their Friday starter, Cole Staff. Um, is now going to be out for the season. He left his start against Georgia injured, and he's been ruled out for the rest of the year. Uh, so Kentucky having to deal with that, but they are coming off of a really nice series win against Georgia, and they're going to be feeling good about themselves. Meanwhile, Ole Miss right now, I'm sure, is not. So uh, a, a tricky, tricky weekend to come for the Rebs. They do not have time to wallow in this one. They, they're going to have to get back on the horse and and get going here because the SEC doesn't allow you time to to recover ever. Um, so that 
this week is a is a big week coming up for Ole Miss after uh, what was uh, an absolutely disappointing weekend. All right, Joe, we're uh, we're gonna turn our attention to Lubbock here in a second, but first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, Joe. So Tennessee and Ole Miss was the the biggest series of the weekend. Uh, had the the biggest impact on the top twenty five and the SEC race and and all the rest of that. But because that series was such a blowout, I found myself definitely gravitating more towards Texas and Texas Tech. They were playing in Lubbock. Uh, it was for me the series of the year in terms of entertainment value. Uh, it also was not short on like import in terms of conference title races these these two teams have won the last five big 12 titles they always seem to play close series that definitely happened this weekend on friday they played extra innings they went 10 innings uh texas tech comes away with a 4-3 victory thanks to kurt wilson's audacious walk-off steal of home uh aaron nixon the texas closer got to an 0-2 count with two outs and runners on second and third and it seemed like he just kind of lost track of the runners. He was so focused on getting the strikeout to get back into the dugout that he forgot, forgot about the runners. And Kurt Wilson took advantage of that opportunity, raced home, scored without a throw for a walk-off win on Friday night. It's actually the second time Texas Tech under Tim Tadlock has beaten Texas on a walk-off steal of home. They did in 2014 as well, which is insane. Uh but then on Saturday, two teams uh, played much more of a slugfest. 
Texas Tech started the game with seven runs in the first inning. They knocked Tristan Stevens out of the game after 23 pitches. Tristan Stevens coming into that game had allowed six runs on the season, six runs in his first five starts. Tech got him for seven in, uh, in, in just that first inning. But Texas did go quietly. They, they rally. They, uh, the, the two teams like trade some runs back and forth. Again, it goes extra innings. And again, Kurt Wilson plays the hero as he comes up with the bases loaded and two outs. And this time he hit a grand slam uh, to walk off that game, clinch the series win. The finale was uh, much more of a Texas story. They win 12 to one in a run ruled shortened game. That game was a little closer than the score indicates. Uh, it was five to one going into the seventh, at which point Texas dropped uh, seven runs and put the run rule into effect and, and went out and, and finished the game. Uh, so kudos to Texas for that, but it was a, uh, it was a thrilling weekend. And I, you know, if you're Texas, I don't think you worry too much about this. Uh, you out hit the red Raiders on the weekend. You left what felt like a million runners on base on Friday and Saturday just didn't quite win the game. Um, things happen. It's a tough road series. You came back, you, you won on Sunday. If you're Texas tech though, this is a huge, huge series win. Uh, it definitely states their intent in the big 12 title race. It shows that all the wins that they piled up against, frankly, lesser competition since opening weekend, um, maybe with the exception of Iowa, but they, they spent a few weeks at home playing not incredible competition. Uh, piling up a bunch of wins and this weekend kind of validates that that they were building momentum at that time much like louisville did we talked about louisville doing that last week texas tech basically did the same thing they built a lot of momentum going into conference play and and this weekend showed that uh again the road to the big 12 title is probably going to go through lubbock and that means that the road to omaha is probably going to go through lubbock and that is exceptional news for the red raiders it's felt like you mentioned you know maybe not too much worry for Texas here just because of how close they were in each of those first two games. And I think that's true, but I think it's also, I think that's also the way those games played out was also a perfect example of what you and I talked about on the preview episode where we say that playing at Texas tech, even though maybe Oklahoma state is a better team than Texas tech, that playing at Texas tech is probably the most uniquely difficult challenge Texas could face at this point. It's because things like that happen in Lubbock. Like that's just Texas tech plays a specific style of baseball. It's super hard nosed. It's aggressive. It's got an edge. And I think the crowd feeds off that it's a great atmosphere in Lubbock. It's, you know, just a really difficult place to play and stuff like that can happen. You feel like if, if, if Texas had been playing, if plays those exact same games, basically in those exact same scenarios in almost any other road atmosphere, big 12 or outside of the big 12, they probably win both of those games and they certainly win at least one of them but because it was that team in that situation those kind of things happen of course texas tech is gonna time up aaron nixon not really paying a lot of attention kind of being you know probably just focused on kind of gathering himself and getting ready to deliver a pitch and they're gonna steal home like of course that's gonna happen like not a lot of teams have the guts to kind of pull that off or give their players the kind of freedom um, and autonomy to do that kind of thing in, in that big of a spot. And then, you know, in, in the second game, it was just kind of like a, a typical rock fight that Texas tech likes to play. 
like tech just likes to win, you know, the, these rock fight type of games. And it goes back to the fact that, you know, year after year, we talk about not being sure what Texas tech has on the mound and being a little wary of what happens when they, what, you know, what happens when they get in games where the starting pitching isn't great and they, they, you know, they have to scrap and they, they just find ways. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of, kind of what they do. Um, and then also what they do is, is compete in the big 12 for the big 12 title. And I think to your point this weekend announces again, that, that tech is going to be a factor in that we weren't necessarily sure about that. I think we thought they'd be a factor, but probably a factor in so far as they'd be a, a dangerous team to play. And, and, you know, maybe they, they play a little bit of spoiler or they're like a team that kind of lurks on the outside of, of the, the top couple of spots. But now I think it's clear that they're a contender again, um, because, you know, if they can take down Texas in this series, there's really nothing, nothing they can't do um, the rest of the way in, in the big 12. So uh, this certainly was a series that I think changes the way we think about the, the shape um, of the big 12 title race the rest of the way. Tech has, I, I don't want to play like they've played one conference series. They, they have uh, seven more to go. Uh, I, I don't super want to do what I'm about to do, but I will say Tech goes to Oklahoma State and to TCU. Um, so this was, uh, th- those are the other teams that we feel like are serious contenders for the title. They have to play on the road at both of them. Um, this was the one other contender that they, they will get at home. Uh, so we'll see what that means. Uh, they are, as I've said a million times on this podcast over the years, they're a different team in Lubbock. And uh, that also, I guess, is part of why I'm just kind of like excusing the fact that Texas has now lost two of its last three series. Uh, they've both been on the road. South Carolina was a weird week. We addressed that. Uh, playing at Lubbock is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, all of that said, though, you would expect a Texas team that, you know, we talked about in such glowing terms coming into this season uh, that they would not have lost two of three series. And the one in the middle is incarnate word. And um, I mean, it just isn't on the same level. So an important week coming for the Longhorns. Uh, but as of now, I am willing to just kind of uh, wave this one off and say, okay, things happen. Uh, but they, they do need to find more consistency now moving forward. You, you, you talked about Trey Lipscomb and how great of a story that is for, for player development and, you know, a, a reminder of like what can happen if you work while you wait and all the rest of that. Kurt Wilson is also uh, a wonderful player development story. He came to, to Lubbock as a two-way player and he was mostly a pitcher for the first three years. He never, like, like he hadn't concentrated on either, but his biggest contributions uh, for the first three years of his career came on the mound, I would say. Uh, then last year he started doing more uh, as a position player than as a, a pitcher. Absolutely. He, he had like 30 some starts even, but he wasn't, he wasn't the leader of that team offensively by any means. He hasn't, that is to say he's really the offensive leader now either. That's obviously still Jace Young, uh, but he, he played a, a bigger role, but now this year he's stepped into an absolutely everyday role from opening day. And uh, he's having a, a really nice season. He's uh, had, Obviously, two moments here that are going to live in, in tech lore for forever, I feel like. Uh, I, I don't think that's me being a prisoner of the moment. Uh, but he's also hitting 293, 411, 489. Uh, I mean, it, it's just been a really good year for a player that uh, up to this point just had it had to be uh, such an integral part of, of the tech offense. 
I think it's a good point. I mean, we, we had so many questions about you've got guys like Wilson and, and Parker Kelly, and you've got a, a transfer from A&M and, and Ty Coleman, who, who also, who was a similar type of player to those guys at A&M. And they were going to be, tech was going to be leaning heavily on those guys. And I think we, we kind of wondered, and I, and I say that as if it like we, we did, we openly wondered like, is that, are they all going to just kind of, I don't want to say magically, but are they just going to get better year over year to the point where they can be key guys offensively? And like the answer so far is yes. And we'll see as they continue to go through big 12 play, but like so far, so good on that, on that front with, with Wilson and, and Parker Kelly, who leads the team with six homers and in Ty Coleman and, you know, Easton Morrell too, who hasn't played in as many games, but you know, he is right in the thick of this as well. Um, he has been excellent also. So it, it does seem like that what we kind of were dubious of being able to happen actually has happened for this Texas tech club. And that's a uh, really impressive stuff. So something to monitor moving forward as well. My, my parting shot on Texas real quick is that I'm with you generally that I'm not too, I mean, look, th- this is a road series in Lubbock and that historically is just not going to go well for teams, right? No matter how good you are um, where I think if, if you, if you wanted to be a little more worried, I guess, like, I don't know, like who, who wants to be more worried, but <laughs> I think um, who would I mean, I could point um, to certain people on our staff, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Tristan Stevens being the type of pitcher he is like, he is occasionally going to get got because the stuff is not elite. It's good enough. And he is a great pitcher. Like he, he does all the, the cliche things about just being a good pitcher, you know, locating and adding and subtracting velocity and moving the ball around and uh, cerebral, all of that stuff. Um, but because the stuff is what it is, this is going to, this is always on the table for Tristan Stevens. And so that's on itself, probably not that much of a risk, but you compound that a little bit, I think, by the fact that this is also a team without Tanner Witt now. And so while Lucas Gordon has been very good, um, he doesn't, at least the, the evidence so far is that he's not missing bats. He's not exactly the type, same type of pitcher as Tanner Witt. And so while he might be very, very good, Maybe he's not quite as good. And so maybe we're looking at a Texas pitching staff that's just a little more vulnerable. Now, this week, it just so happened that, you know, Pete Hansen was was good enough to win and it didn't work out, obviously. Stevens got hit around and then Lucas Gordon was was very, very good on Sunday. So that kind of bucks back against my point. But point being is that there are weekends, I think, where it's entirely possible that, you know, Hansen pitches well in a win on Friday. Stevens gets got on Saturday and loses or vice versa. I mean, that could happen too. And then it comes down to a Lucas Gordon performance on Sunday and, you know, it's on the table for him to prove me wrong on this, but is he, is he as good as we think Tanner Witt was going to be um, at the time he went down? And that's the open question. So I think, you know, this is what happens with injuries, but the Longhorns pitching staff just feels like a little more vulnerable than it did before. um, Especially when you consider that, Tristan Stevens was probably pitching a standard deviation or two in terms of results uh, better than, you know, we could have ever expected coming into the season. Texas is now going through life basically with three pitchability guys in the rotation, as opposed to three premium arms. I don't like no judgments on anything there. Like that's just more of the reality that Hanson Stevens and Gordon uh, are are just more about control and you know being pitchers pitchers not that Tanner Witt can't do that uh, but like he just has the biggest arm of the group and they lost that and now they're they're running out uh, you know the 
this very good rotation, but a rotation that is much more similar to each other than maybe you would you would prefer. Um, this week is a huge week for Texas, uh, just emotionally. They have AM at home. We all know what that rivalry means. And then they play Oklahoma in Arlington. Uh, they moved that to a neutral site this year, kind of taking advantage of the lockout the fact that the Rangers don't need their their ballpark uh, this weekend. So they're uh, they're going to take on Oklahoma there. Uh, the, I mentioned that the tech has the two other big contenders on the road. Well, the flip side of that is that Texas has TCU and Oklahoma State both at home. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes, but this is a massive week, uh, for the horns, just from an emotional standpoint, like they should, you know, AM and Oklahoma are not at their best right now. Um, you know, just as, as programs, uh, they're not at their best, uh, Texas would be favored in, in all of these games. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, but it, it is an emotional week, uh, as they, they take on these two rivals. One last thought here on tech before we move on, Joe. Uh, and I guess it's just a question I have uh, that I don't really know the answer to, and you probably don't either. Uh, just does Tech have enough pitching? <laughs> you know, like having said all these great things about about Tech, uh, this is still a team that gave up 24 runs in the final two games of this series. Brandon Birdsell was good, not great on Saturday, which is new. He had been great all season long to this point. Um, and they were they're very good on Friday, but like it just felt like they were maybe an arm or two short. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it is exactly when you, when you say that I don't have the answer either, I think it makes that clear that I don't have the answer that the attempt at an answer I'm going to give you to, do they have enough pitching is no, but also yes, because <laughs> they just, I think the answer is no, but there's just something about this team. We we have this question about tech every year. And like, I guess last year you could point to the fact that they, they clearly were just like a notch below what they normally are last year because they, they did lose, um, you know, a, a super regional at home in spectacular fashion. Indeed. Yes. They got rolled and then, and they were only, I'm putting air quotes that the listeners can't see, but only 14 and 10 in the big 12 last year. So I guess you could point to that and say, well, last year they kind of, you know, it, it kind of came back to bite them. And so, okay, fair point. But this is kind of a question we have about tech every year and they always figure it out. I mean, and I think this weekend is a great example where to your point, Birdsell was just okay. And Mason and Molina was, you know, probably below average. And those guys have been really rock solid for them all year. And it just didn't matter. They won the series. So I think the answer is no, like I, I am not, I'm not going to really, I don't think I'm not going to really be overly confident in what tech brings to the mound in any given weekend, but I do have confidence that despite that, they are going to figure it out. All right, let's, uh, let's move it on here. Let's go back to the SEC. Uh, there were two pretty significant upsets uh, in the conference. You had uh, let's, I guess just go chronologically and they started on Thursday night, South Carolina and Vanderbilt did Vanderbilt went to South Carolina. They won on Thursday night, 10 to nothing seemed like that might just be the way the weekend went. Uh, at that point, South Carolina had lost five straight. They had been swept the week before at Tennessee lost Tuesday uh, at the Citadel. And then South Carolina, you know, just, I don't want to say they no showed on Thursday, but uh, it wasn't a good, it was not a good outing. Uh, for, for South Carolina in that opener. Uh, but then they came back on Friday and they got to Carter Holton, knocked him out in the second inning. Nobody had done anything like that to Carter Holton this season. 
Uh, he was off to a, a sensational start to his career, the, the freshman was. Uh, and South Carolina goes on to win that game. And then they uh, come back on Saturday and clinch the series with uh, kind of a hard fought little back and forth for a while. And South Carolina pulled away uh, late and held on and they win uh, a massive series. And now the, the, we talked about Texas losing two of their last three series. Uh, well, South Carolina has won two of its last three, both against top five teams at the time in Texas and Vanderbilt. Uh, they just sandwiched that around that five game losing streak and, Man, I don't know what to make of South Carolina, but we'll uh, we'll figure that out as as we go through it here. Um, and then also down in Gainesville, LSU, which did not look great to start SEC play last weekend against Texas A&M in a series loss at home. They go out to uh, to Florida. They lose on Friday, seven to two. Hunter Barco was quite good for Florida. It happens, uh, but after that, it was all LSU. Uh, they really brought out the bats the next two days and, and won in routes. And uh, that was kind of the LSU that we were we were expecting this season, uh, you know, scoring 27 runs over the final two games of the series to, to win. Uh, the, the bigger story for me was on the mound where they held Florida to just five runs on 10 hits over those two games. Uh, but regardless, LSU and South Carolina uh, both got pretty big, I, not even pretty big. They got really big series wins this weekend. Yeah. I'm just, just looking at it now. I'm reminded too, that both of South Carolina's marquee series wins, the one over Texas and, and this past weekend, the one over Vanderbilt kind of followed the same formula where it was an opening a series opening loss that kind of is uninspiring. Recall that South Carolina in a series that was pushed to a game Saturday and then a doubleheader Sunday Lost the opener nine to five. Of course, against Vanderbilt, they lose 10 to nothing. And then against Texas, they win both ends of the Sunday doubleheader. And then, of course, against Vanderbilt, they won games on Friday and, and Saturday. It's kind of the, the college baseball living version of the uh, real life version of that meme where it's the old guy bent over in the car and he's like, call an ambulance. And then he's like, but not for me. And he holds the gun up. Like, that's essentially what, the, what South Carolina has done in these two series. Um, and I, I'm with you. I don't. I don't have a clue what to make of South Carolina. What I can say confidently is like, well, I guess I can't even say that confidently. Like, so like now I'm going back on this, but you know, we talked about this team that they had a fairly favorable sec schedule that is still largely true. Um, so if they could just kind of pick off, you know, a couple of series, they're not supposed to win or a couple of toss up series that they'd be in pretty good shape. And like, they've done that, you know, with the, with what they've done, but, you know, they're just one game over 500 overall. They're still technically under, well, not even in a literal sense, under 500 in conference because they got swept by Tennessee, which there's no shame in that. But um, so it, at the same time, it feels like they're in really good shape to be a postseason team, which was not a given coming into the year. And on the other hand, it still feels like they have work to do to make sure that's the case. But, you know, yeah, all they're of 12 it, and all 11, true. 11. You know, you can't feel good about a team that's just a game over 500. No, like it just, it's yeah, the weirdest like last such a... month, like swept, swept by Clemson, go out, win a series against Texas, which was number one at the time and hadn't lost a series all season to that point, go out, get swept at Tennessee, lose a random midweek in, in the middle of this, come back home, beat Vanderbilt. Like I, I they, they need to find some more consistency somehow, but it is clear that they can beat any team in the country on any given weekend, especially if they're playing in Founders Park. Yeah. And that's probably a key piece of the key piece of the puzzle here. 
um, yeah, I mean, right down to, I mean, it just had to work really hard to win a series against UNC Greensboro to begin the season. Like, it's just, you can even go beyond just like the, the big, bold stuff on their, on their resume to, to be confounded by it. So, you know, I don't, I guess I don't really have any super uh, interesting takes about South Carolina. Although I guess I will say that we've talked about this a little before, but it does seem like at least so far, it is not uh, certainly in this version of the SEC, but even in an average SEC, this is not the most dynamic offense in the league. However, it does feel like their attempt to kind of reshape who they are offensively seems to have taken uh, in terms of, of what they're doing offensively. It just feels like an offense, like a little more dynamic and a little bit more capable of doing different things to score runs. They're not waiting around for home runs in the same way. Um, so what they've given up in terms of power, I think they've gotten back in terms of being a little more dynamic. So we'll, we'll just kind of have to see on that on the, um, in terms of uh, LSU and Florida, I, a couple things there is I referenced this earlier, but you know, this is kind of with a team that's built like LSU, this is kind of the series, the type of series win that we're looking for them to get, right. It's okay. You got kind of out done by a really good pitcher on Friday in Barco. Okay. Sh- that's, you know, perfectly defensible. And then they come out the next two days and score a bunch of runs. And Oh, by the way, get a really good pitching performance really both days, but you know, especially on, on Sunday that maybe they weren't expecting. And maybe next week it has to be a different couple of guys who get it done in the mound, but it's, it's always got to be somebody who's got to step up on the mound every weekend for LSU. That's just the reality of what they're trying to do here is, you know, there's not really much they can bank on on the mound from week to week. They're just going to need somebody to step up and give them a chance to win. And, and they did that. Um, the other thing about Florida too, is, um, you know, Brandon Sprout has been pretty up and down this year. He's had some really good outings. He's had some not so good outings. Uh, and it is kind of putting Florida in a position where I think this has happened a couple of times for Florida, where they, they get a really good Barco on Friday. And then there's just a lot of questions about what they have the rest of the weekend on the mound. Here's the, for me, the most encouraging sign for LSU. And, and the pitching is a very real thing because I think Florida can score a lot of runs. The fact that they held Florida down for two days uh, I, I think is significant, but LSU, there's been a lot of angst in Baton Rouge, deservedly so, about the defense. And they played error-free baseball on Saturday and Sunday. They had done that just three times in their first 22 games of the season. I know errors are not a perfect way to measure defensive efficiency, all the rest of that. Still, they had played error-free baseball just three times in the first 22 games of the season. They go out and do it on Saturday and Sunday. It's the first time they've done it in back-to-back games as well. I mean, that all feels significant. I don't know really what changed that much this weekend. Now, I, I say that I, the big thing that changed is that kind of in the middle of the weekend, not even in the middle of the weekend, um, but on Friday, and then it continued into Saturday and Sunday, Jordan Thompson and Kay Doty flipped so K. Doty moved from second to short, and uh, Thompson went the other way across the bag. Um, that alone doesn't feel like the reason for the, the complete flip in, in defensive efficiency. Uh, but if that's the change that they needed, if that's if that's something that that's going to move forward now and and be a better situation for for LSU, then you know, whatever it takes. Um, but that that's a big development for me. the The pitching is interesting. Um, Jay Johnson at the end of the AM series had kind of hinted that they were going to go. Well, he said they were going to go back to the drawing board. And I felt like he was kind of pinning at that they were going to do something 
a little more radical with their pitching staff that they weren't going to ask starters to do typical starter things. And none of their starters went deep. Uh, the, the deepest anyone went, I think was Mikhail. Oh, I know it was Mikhail Hilliard going five and two thirds. Um, I thought they were going to be a little more defined in some piggyback situations. It did feel like they were trying to piggyback guys uh, on Sunday, Samuel Dalton, uh, Samuel Dutton only went three and two thirds scoreless innings uh, before they went to Grant Taylor out of the bullpen and, uh, he took it the rest of the way. So I, it was a little bit of a different look. I just wasn't maybe as radical as I thought it might end up being. Uh, that, like you said, Joe, they're going to need somebody to step up every weekend. That feels like it's going to be in flux for a little while until they um, you know, find the right trio of guys, the right six guys, the right eight guys, whatever it is, until they settle on how they want to do this a little more. Uh, but it, very encouraging to go on the road. Uh, and shut down a, a good Florida lineup for, for two days. The question it, I uh, have. It doesn't have to oh, be the same guy. Go ahead. I was going to say, it doesn't have to be the same guy on the mound for LSU. It just has to be somebody every time. And that's that's the thing. is If you've got volume you can play with and just throwing numbers forward at them, then, um, you know, it's just got to be somebody different every weekend. That's, the, that's easier said than done. But I think it's also easier than, you know, we only have these six guys and we're not so sure about them and we're just going to have to keep running the same guys out there. They, they do have some numbers to throw at it. Yeah, absolutely. And they didn't even get to some of their better relievers this weekend because the series just didn't quite call for it. The two wins were blowouts and the one loss, you know, they, they were behind early. Um, you know, so I, I think there is a lot to be encouraged about on the mound. The question I have, Joe, about these this, this uh, pair of series is, what is Vanderbilt? You know, they have two series losses this season uh, at home against Oklahoma State on opening weekend. And now this weekend at South Carolina, those are their only losses this season. They've won everything else that they've played. What they've played hasn't been that great. Um, Missouri it was their SEC opening series. They swept them. Missouri showed lot of fight this weekend against Arkansas at home, ultimately losing the series, but they did win the game there. Uh, but I mean, we're talking about a team that we picked to finish last in the SEC East and hasn't really done anything to change that projection uh, so far this season. I mean, they've played fine, but they, they haven't really, they're not an SEC contender, basically, is what I'm saying here. Uh, otherwise, Vanderbilt, you know, in the non-conference just didn't do a whole lot. Um the rest of the, the the other three weekends after Oklahoma State, so you have them losing series to what I am sure are the two best teams that they have played to this point, uh, and now they have a huge huge series this weekend uh, against Tennessee, and we're going to dive more into Vanderbilt on Thursday. That that's for sure. But as we sit here in the immediate aftermath of this series loss, Joe, like what what are your Vanderbilt feelings? I, I'm just as confused as you are. Um, you know, I, I guess what we can say if we're looking for the charitable way of looking at it is that there were toss up games in both of those series. Vanderbilt easily could have won both of them. And then we're looking at them being, you know, maybe as high as, you know, number two or number three in the country here. And we're, we're feeling really good about them because I, I don't, it does not jump out to me immediately where this team is obviously really, really vulnerable. As long as you believe that what we saw this weekend was not, South Carolina kind of opening up Pandora's box on figuring out Carter Holton. If you, if you believe that, then I guess you could say, okay, so now we've got McIlvain and then question marks afterward. 
Um, except however, Patrick Riley was outstanding in relief of uh, of Holton, and he's been outstanding all season long. So if there is suddenly an open spot in the rotation, uh, you can move Riley there. And I know they've been trying to do piggybacks, and that would maybe mess up some of the piggybacks. But uh, Patrick Riley has been excellent. Yeah, which I mean furthers the point that I don't I don't really know. Like it doesn't stand out as something that's and and that can be the case, right? It can be that nothing is really wrong. They just lost a series and. Um, you know, South Carolina plays well at home, apparently that's a thing. And, um, they had, you know, a game where they had a, you know, a, a young guy have a tough start and they weren't able to kind of get back in that game. And then South Carolina got one more big hit essentially in Saturday's game. It, it can really just boil down to that. Um, but the, 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 certainly the Tennessee series, I think could be illuminating in, in a way because for, for Tennessee, it's, it's again, another tough series they don't, they don't have anything else to prove but obviously they're, they're going to be looking to prove themselves week after week here and for Vanderbilt it's an opportunity hey look you you go win that series and then we're really not going to have any questions about you you know it's just gonna we're going to be ready to chalk those series losses up to things just just happen um but I don't I don't really have any great answers as to why they've lost those two series other than um that's baseball Susan I guess <laughs> uh yeah I mean I there, there are I it doesn't seem to stand out to me either. So we'll uh, that we'll, we'll we'll just have to wait and see here. Uh, but I will say that if they lose this weekend, it wouldn't be great that they lost three of their first seven series. So uh, yeah, big no doubt. I mean, on tap, on some level, you have to win the games. You know, uh, like we we can sit here week after week, and we're we're doing this with Texas too, right? Where it's like, ah, you know, you lose a series, it's fine. You know, they'll bounce back. We believe, you know, and on some level, you have to win the games. And losing a series against Tennessee, obviously, there's not a lot of shame in that, but but it would put them a little bit behind the eight ball, perhaps. Um, but we'll see. I mean, this is this is very much a we'll see situation. I feel like with Vanderbilt. All right, let's uh, let's move it on to the ACC. Uh, a lot of lot going on there, as always. Uh, the loudest thing for me this weekend was Miami sweeping a series against North Carolina. Uh, did it in kind of exciting fashion i guess friday was kind of what you would expect carson pompost was good and they just beat north carolina but they needed comebacks on saturday and sunday they played 14 innings in a getaway sunday game miami comes away uh with the 3-2 victory and the sweep and miami now has won their first three acc series and to me the most important thing about miami is that they are continuing continually getting better like you can see in all three series like Okay, they had a tough time of it uh, against Boston College in some ways on opening weekend of ACC play. They lost on Friday and kind of had to fight back in that series. Then uh, at Clemson last weekend, they win the first two games on the road, get blitzed on Sunday. It was like 20 to 5. This weekend, they put together a complete series. Uh, They did have to fight a little bit against a good UNC team, but they came back against UNC's really good bullpen twice and they come away with a sweep. Uh, I love to see that growth. Uh, I think that's great news for the Canes moving forward. For UNC, I mean, obviously, that's a really tough series sweep. Um, but we'll see where they go from here. Uh, Virginia kept rolling. They win a series at Wake Forest. Uh, North Carolina State swept Georgia Tech. That was really loud for the Wolfpack. Uh, and also, in a negative way, for, for Georgia Tech, uh, two programs maybe going in opposite directions now we'll see uh virginia tech and notre dame only played one game uh due to bad weather in the midwest virginia tech won it and all of a sudden 
Notre Dame has lost four straight. And uh, Clemson and Pitt only played two games. Again, bad weather in the Midwest. Uh, Pitt swept a doubleheader in that situation. Uh, and Clemson now really, really fighting it after uh, a 14-0 start. They, uh, they've hit a major skid here. Um, so, Joe, from all of that, uh, you were at Wake Forest uh, for, for one of the games with Virginia. You were at NC State for one of the games with Georgia Tech. Take it wherever you want it. What did you what did you think uh, from ACC play this weekend? So on on Virginia, because I think this will be relatively quick. I think they they showed that to me right now they're the most complete team in the ACC. I think a great example. It's what I wrote about after the game Saturday is that they showed off their depth on on Saturday. They Brian Gursky, a left hander who's been very steady for them in the rotation so far this year, got, got sick, you know, couldn't pitch. Um, so they just bring in a sophomore lefty, Jake Barry, who's been pretty good in the bullpen. Um, and he throws five hitless innings, you know, and, and they, as a team almost throw a no hitter, you know, it ends up being, they give up a, a, a little slow roller up the middle that they tried to get a force out at second base on. It was the, the toss was late. That was the, the only hit they gave up in a one hit shutout. Um, but he pitches, they, they turn the ball over to Jay Wolfolk, who's a freshman reliever who doubles as a quarterback on the football team. Um, didn't pitch at all in the fall. Um, and talking to Brian O'Connor after the game, he said, you know, I always knew that he was going to be, he's just such a, he just has such a confidence and a presence about him that I knew even without him pitching in the fall, he was going to be a big part of things for, for us on the mound. But I think a lot of outside onlookers would think, okay, doesn't, really pitch in the fall was busy playing football, probably going to be a guy who's slow coming along, but you know, he's tied for the team lead in appearances. The numbers are very good. The stuff is very good. I mean, that's a guy I don't think anybody would have outside of that program would have banked on being a big part of the mix for them. And he's been right in the middle of all of it. So there's that on the mound. And then offensively, the guy who had the biggest weekend was Alex Tappen. And, you know, we talked about Trey Lipscomb and this is a different situation. Alex Tappen has been much more of a regular at times for Virginia over the previous four years, but he was what I'd call a moderately productive player. Like he had some nice moments. He swung the bat well leading up to Virginia getting to Omaha last year, but wasn't really ever the guy or even really a guy in the lineup for Virginia. And this year he's, he's just, he's just broke out. He's had a, having a career year. He's already set career highs in a bunch of categories, including home runs with eight RBI with 38. Um, and again, that's a guy, if you were going to talk reasons for optimism about Virginia's lineup, you know, you might've talked Jake Geloff. And of course he's been outstanding with 13 home runs. You know, you talk Chris Newell, you talk Kyle Teal. You might even, if you were really bought in on the freshman, you might've talked Griffo Farrell and, and Casey Salke, who have also both been excellent. Like it would have taken you a while to get to Alex Tappen. And he's been as much of a catalyst as anybody, maybe other than Geloff so far this season. So it's a team with, with extra guys to burn both on the position player side and on the mound, because all of the previous stuff we've talked about with Virginia is true. Nate Savino has taken a step forward. The pitching depth seems, you know, seems pretty good. Like, yes, the freshmen have been outstanding, um, but there's just a lot of quality. They're playing defense at an excellent clip, 987 fielding. All of it is true. Um, and the depth just stood out to me where it's, it's guys who woke up that morning, you know, especially in the case of, of Jake Barry woke up that morning, not expecting to get the ball and gets the ball and just absolutely runs with 
the opportunity. So, we, you know, we can obviously, and we will see as the season goes on, debate how good an opponent or not Wake Forest is. I think it's a good team that may or may not end up as a postseason team. We'll see. But I just came away really impressed with the comprehensive nature of Virginia winning that series in the first two games, but particularly on Saturday, just, you know, guys that weren't going to be the first ones uh, out of your mouth when you talk about reasons for optimism with Virginia that, that really stepped up in a big way. I have pretty real confidence in Wake Forest being a postseason team. Um, we'll see exactly where they land. But yeah, I, I, I Virginia hasn't played a uh, marquee series yet, I would say but they just keep winning games against solid competition. They've gone on the road now twice in conference play and uh, come away with four wins. And uh, it's just hard not to be impressed by what they're doing on the flip side. Let's talk about Georgia tech. Like I, I don't want what NC state did sweeping that series. That's big for NC state. It has big implications for them moving forward. They now have a lot of momentum. They get a reeling Clemson team this weekend, big deal for the Wolfpack. On the flip side, now Georgia Tech has lost two straight series. They lost at home to Wake Forest last weekend. They got swept in Raleigh this weekend. It's a team that looked pretty good in non-conference play. They won a series against Georgia. They're 16-9 overall, but sitting here at 4-5 and five in the ECC, coming off of tough back-to-back weekends, what, what are the Yellow Jackets? I mean, we've been asking this question, I feel like, all season long, but what, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, right now they're just a very one-sided team. Like, it's a team that has to win games offensively because uh, there's just not a lot they can hang their their hat on right now. Some of it is not their own doing necessarily. They've had some injury issues. Notably, their shortstop Chandler Simpson has been out the last couple of weeks. He supposedly is, I've heard, is is on the mend and is probably, a ma- it's a matter of like weeks versus months in terms of, of his returning. But on, that hurts them on two fronts. One, without him in the lineup, they are a little bit of a station-to-station offensive team, um, which, you know, isn't the worst thing in the world because they have enough power that you don't really want to run into outs necessarily. However, he does give them a, a, a dynamism that they just don't get anywhere else in their lineup. Secondarily, and more importantly, when you take him out of the lineup at shortstop, they have to move some pieces around, Um you know, putting, you know, they have to move some pieces around and it kind of involves putting some guys in, in situations in the middle infield that they're just defensively not the best options for. And so I think him coming back does give them a better defensive alignment. Although some of the defensive questions just aren't going to go away. Right. I mean, Andrew Jenkins had a really tough weekend at first base. Um, You know, there was a drop pop up there Friday night. There were some, you know, throws to him at first base that he didn't corral that probably were catchable balls. And that, that obviously is independent of any sort of injuries that Georgia tech has faced so far this year, but the defensive questions are real. It's just a a very offensive oriented team. And then there's the pitching. And I think there are some bright spots here, but you'll have to follow me on them. Like Zach Maxwell did not work out as a starting pitcher. It was, I think it was an understandable attempt. Hey, he's one of our best arms. It makes some sense to give him a shot in the rotation that did not work out. He just was not efficient enough to really be successful in that role. They move him back to the bullpen. He debuts in the bullpen Friday night. He was excellent. It now I, I don't watch Georgia tech week in week out, but I see them enough to know that he looked just way more comfortable in that bullpen role. He was dominant. Um, I, I think that's just a, a better fit for him. So 
I guess in some ways that does shore up the bullpen a little bit. So that is a positive, but you, you do have to fill spots in the rotation. And that's just, um, that, that, that's just the part that I think is, is the biggest trouble spot is who can you, who can you bet on giving you, you know, four, even just five quality innings at this point, you know, I think there's some reason for optimism with the way Marquise Grissom jr. Has pitched a little bit this year. It seems like maybe he's coming on a little bit, but from inning to inning, it's just such a struggle for Georgia tech to, to string outs enough outs together. And while their offenses has been very, very good. I mean, we saw it this weekend with, you know, Ole Miss against Tennessee or, you know, Florida against LSU that, you know, when you have concerns on the mound and when you're leaking a little bit on the mound, even the best offenses in the country aren't always going to be able to bail you out. And I think right now Georgia tech is in a situation where the offense has just lately been less able to bail the defense and pitching staff out and things don't get any easier. The next two weekends are, are brutally difficult with Virginia and Florida state on deck for, for the yellow jackets. So I think either they're going to prove us wrong and say, Hey, we actually can compete at this level. And maybe they figure some things out along the way, or I think suddenly their ACC record is going to take a real hit here. Yeah. They, uh, they absolutely need a response the next two weeks. We talk about all the time, how the SEC can, uh, put you into a spiral. I mean, it can happen in the ACC too. There are maybe a, a few more traditionally safer landing spots in ACC play, but there are an awful lot of teams that you don't want to face and all of a sudden things can spiral on you. So big couple of weeks coming for Georgia Tech and obviously NC State uh, has to be feeling better about themselves right now um, than they were a couple of weeks ago. So we'll uh, we'll see where they go. And the last thing I want to say about the ACC is that uh, all of a sudden Miami has the best record other than uh, Louisville, which is 6-0 and and has played one less series. But Miami has more ACC wins than anyone. No, no one has more ACC wins than Miami. Virginia has the same record, but no one has more ACC wins than Miami, uh, which is not something I necessarily saw coming a couple of weeks ago when they uh, were kind of fighting it against, uh, you know, against Harvard, against Florida, against even BC. So uh, again, I've, I've been very impressed with the way the Canes have, uh, have continued to build and we'll see whether that's sustainable now moving forward. Yeah. Miami playing well in the ACC play papas. And that'll mean something to uh, the Miami folks listening here, the play papas. <laughs> All right, let's uh, head out West uh, where in the PAC 12, everyone is looking up at Oregon. That's right. The ducks are in first place in the Pac-12, just as everyone thought they would be. Um, Oregon State has gotten a lot of play this year. I've been a part of that. Uh, they've deserved everything that we've talked about with them. Uh, but Oregon is now 7-2. and two. Oregon State's 6-3. and three. They haven't been able to sweep a, a Pac-12 series yet. Oregon, however, has not had such trouble. They get a... Uh, a tough series win this weekend at home against Southern Cal. They move into the top 25 for the first time this season. They're number four in RPI. Uh, they've, they've really gone hot in Pac-12 play. Uh, they also added a midweek win against Gonzaga. Uh, a lot going well for Oregon on the field. Uh, off the field, they're still missing Adam Mayer, their opening day starter, who Coach Mark Waskowski set out, uh, said this week is out indefinitely. Uh, they've also been out without Andrew Moziello, who's fellow rotation mate of uh, 
of Mayer. He's been out since the UCSB series. That sounds like he's making more progress and could be back sooner than later. Um, but without them, Oregon's had to kind of piece it together on the mound. They really had to piece it together against USC, did it a little more offensively. But uh, the good news for the Ducks is that under Waz, un- unlike in previous uh, years, they uh, they really can swing the bats, and that's what they did this weekend. So I don't know how sustainable what Oregon is doing is, just knowing that, yeah, I mean, you can only lose so many pitchers before it becomes a real problem for you. Uh, but to this point, they have series wins against Stanford, uh, against Southern Cal, and, you know, they're there they are in first place in the Pac-12. Yeah, it feels like Oregon's in a position where they can really kind of take advantage of the fact that outside of Oregon State, that the Pac-12 has not been that steady, right? I mean, Stanford has has fallen back from where they were to begin the season. Arizona has taken on series losses we did not expect. UCLA has uh, had the ups and downs we expected from a team that is as freshman heavy as they are. So, you know, here's Oregon, the kind of a team that's just been able to fill in that power vacuum, I think, in a lot of ways. And much in the same way we talked about offensive development for some of the guys in Tennessee's lineup, I think that's that's what's impressive to me with with this unit. And, you know, Brennan Malone has had a set, yes. Yeah, but I mean, Brennan Malone's a guy who was, you know, a blue chip recruit at South Carolina that could just never quite put it together there. And he's been a big piece of it. Colby Shade's a guy who missed a lot of last season with injury, ended up with just, you know, uh, numbers being what they were because he didn't play a ton has been absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, Josh Kasevich seems to have taken a little bit of a step forward here to the point where, you know, the guys we were really banking on coming into the year were guys like Tanner Smith and Anthony Hall. And those guys have been pretty good, um, but not anywhere near the best guys they've had offensively. So it just uh, feels Tanner, like a, Tanner Smith does lead the, the team in home runs. He does indeed. Indeed. Seven home runs. Um. So it, it just, and this is kind of what coach Waz does. I mean, his, his offenses have typically places he's been, have been good. Um, offensive development is, is certainly something that if you're going to point to what he and his, his staff typically do well, that is among the things. So not a huge surprise, but it is definitely notable here. They feel a little like Arizona state last year where Arizona state kind of started off this way. And also notably Arizona state pitching injuries were a big storyline last year. It obviously proved with Arizona State to not be sustainable. I think this team is better than that one. Um, at least right now, that's kind of my feeling on it. Maybe that's prisoner of the moment. That's just kind of my gut on that. Um, but I, I do think there probably will be a little more coming to the pack as Oregon really gets into the teeth of this thing. But they've done enough already um, to really set themselves up well. And you mentioned the RPI number, and we won't bog people down too much with, with RPI minutia right this minute. But that is a good sign for, hey, if you – if you do enough in the Pac-12, you Pac-12 play, you could be playing at home uh, come June, and that would be a, a very big development for this program to have hosted twice in a row. The significant thing about what they're doing on the mound right now is while their starters have, uh, you know, they're dealing with injuries and they've had to plug some guys in, the bullpen has continued to, to do its thing. Colby Summers is a, you know, he's a veteran at the back of the bullpen and has been really good for them this year. And they've gotten some good work from, uh, from Logan Mercado and Matt Dallas and some guys that have just stepped up into, into roles and they've, you know, had to go to time and again. Uh, so eventually if Moziello is able to come back and um, you know, whatever role he's able to pitch in, like that would be significant. And uh, you know, if they, if they can just establish a little bit more consistency in their starting rotation, I think that they can find consistency as a team 
I mean, they've all kind of already achieved consistency, but that, that can then become sustainable all season long. That's a big thing to ask when you're down two of your opening day or opening weekend rotation guys. Uh, but I, I think that there is, there is reason uh, to be pretty optimistic about the ducks right now. And I am saying that as the guy that picked them as my Omaha sleeper coming into the year. So I am a little predisposed to thinking that, but uh, I, I think that you have to be pretty pleased with where the ducks are uh, right now. Elsewhere in the PAC 12 UCLA went to Tucson and won a series. Joe talked about the up and down nature of UCLA. Uh, their month has been kind of crazy here. They, you know, went two and one at the Shriners college classic in Houston they went home and lost a series to USC for the first time in like seven years. Uh, then they had to fight really hard to win a series against Harvard. Uh, now they go to Arizona and win a series. And so UCLA is what it is. Like we knew coming into the year, there was going to be some up and down with how youthful they are. Joe, I'm more interested in Arizona, which has now lost two home series and Tucson is supposed to be a place that's really difficult to play. And now Texas state, and UCLA have gone in there and won one series. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the way in which they've, at least this past weekend against UCLA, troublesome is maybe not quite the right word, but it's just the way in which I, I don't think we thought Arizona would be dropping series. And that's that the, the offensive production has been really inconsistent. And I think we, I think we talked about this on, on a previous episode, but it's, it's a, the offensive attack is pretty top heavy you know, with guys, um, you know, you've got Susak and, and Otrimba hitting better than 400 and then, you know, no other guy who's been a regular all season hitting over 300. Right. And so it just kind of has felt a little uneven offensively. And so that is not exactly what I would have expected. I would have thought the flip side would be, you know, this team scores plenty of runs and, and, you know, the, the, the pitching performances are a little more up and down. The pitching has actually been has been fairly steady and it's been the offense that has been a little bit tougher to bank on from week to week. All right. Elsewhere around the country, you had DBU beating Maryland. We talked about that on the preview pod, um, how significant that could be for DBU. They remain number one in RPI, despite what Tennessee did this weekend. DBU still is hanging on at number one. And I don't know, again, I don't know how long that's going to last, but it, I mean, it's real and they're clearly the best team in the Missouri Valley and they haven't hosted since 2015. Uh, they may well have a home regional this year. Um, Mercer now has 20 wins. The only programs in the country that have more wins than that are Virginia and Tennessee. Uh, Mercer goes out and wins a series at Utah. The schedule has not been outstanding, but they have 20 wins and two of those are against Pac-12 team. Um, they, they look like a team that, that is really going to be a problem in, uh, in the SOCON. Um, I mentioned Army and Navy. That's always a, a fun series. Uh, Liberty lost a series against Stetson, and that could have some serious implications come tournament time uh, for Liberty and for the A-Sun overall. Uh, Charlotte won a series at ODU, uh, very significant in the Conference USA race. Uh, and Purdue and Ohio State were limited to just one game. Again, um, that's a result of bad weather in the Midwest. Purdue won it, uh, but I just really hate that we missed an out on an opportunity. I was really looking forward to learning more this weekend with them just playing one game. I don't feel like I learned a whole lot 
Uh, and UConn took a bad loss to Rhode Island on Saturday. Uh, that did a lot of bad, that undid a lot of good work that UConn had done RPI wise to this point. Uh, so again, when we're, uh, it's March, can't look too deep into it, but looking ahead, uh, you know, UConn now in a, they, they have let, they, they burned some of their margin for error by losing to Rhode Island on Saturday. So uh, just some things there that caught my eye around the country, Joe, anything, uh, anything catch you? There was, I mean, in the big picture, one thing that's kind of fascinating to me, you and I have talked about this offline is that the Ivy league looks, I mean, considering how much, especially how much time they've taken off, like the Ivy league is pretty strong. Um, an interesting subplot to watch there is that there's a handful of Ivy league teams that are hanging around in RPI and look like this is not an, an Ivy league team singular. And I say that on purpose, hanging around in the RPI at this point of the season is not uncommon. Those teams play road games early. Um, so they, they, they typically are higher in the RPI than you would think. And then eventually they fall off once they get into conference play. But right now you've got a group of them that are kind of hanging around some of which have decent wins on their resume. So I do wonder about the staying power there. Um, also, I think I saw this weekend, uh, Yale, uh, had a player whose name is escaping me. I apologize. Hit four home runs in a game. I feel That's like correct. I saw that, that happened. Yes. So like also individual, have... uh, accomplishment, shout out Josh Hatcher of Kennesaw state late of Mississippi uh, yes. state, uh, two cycles in the week. And uh, yeah. don't look now, but the Owls are off to a, a nice start. They're undefeated in the A-Sun. And, you know, I said uh, Liberty, you know, tough weekend here. But, uh, you know, Kennesaw State might be a team to watch in the, the A-Sun as well. No, I think that's right. And there you – Kennesaw State has um, – they're, they're a team that I, I wrote a little bit about them. I kind of – they were like a little bit of a afterthoughts, I guess, maybe the right word for it. But when I wrote about – mid-major teams that have kind of done some work already towards being an at-large team. They're another one that doesn't have a lot of margin for error. You, you would think given their location in Georgia, that they would have opportunities for, you know, really good, you know, midweek games and, and just a, a line of them. And they've already played Georgia tech. Um, they do have one with Georgia left, um, but their midweek schedule is not necessarily like we see with some of these teams in the a sun or the SOCON or what have you, where it's just, week after week of ACC and SEC. So they, they're a team that will kind of, if it feels like they're going to be walking a thin line this year, if they're going to be a postseason team looking for an at-large as opposed to the automatic bid. The Yale player uh, whose name we were, were searching for, uh, Jake Gary to-, uh, to Ah, yes, thank loop. you. Four home runs, two of which grand slams against uh, Princeton that? on Sunday. Uh, Alrighty, so we covered an awful lot of ground this week. Um, it was a very exciting week of college baseball all around the country. Uh, love that we're into conference play in so many places. Uh, that that really that brings an extra dimension to this whole thing, uh, and we're looking forward to doing it again this week. So make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America College Podcast. We come at you twice a week during the season on Mondays with the recap, on Thursdays with the preview, and whatever news that we uh, were rounding up, that's that's the schedule. So make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the Baseball America podcast. Hit that follow button or subscribe button, and it'll come right into your phone there twice a week. 
You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And there is way, way, way more to read over on the website. That's baseballamerica.com. We'll be back here on Thursday. Another great week on tap. Uh, Tennessee and Vanderbilt series is a big one. Oregon is going down to UCLA uh, in an intriguing series. And Florida State hosts Notre Dame. That's the big series out of the ACC uh, this weekend. So we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about on Thursday. For Joe, I'm Teddy. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.